This is Mystery History Theater. Booth has already killed Lincoln, and Payne or Powell uh, has attacked Seward. Uh, Harold has, was pretty much the whipping boy for this whole situation. And uh, as Booth was leaving after uh, the deed, he was followed up not by David Harold, but by Edward Henson. Harold had rented a, a horse from uh, Nailers. Uh, that day, but so had Henson. Now, uh, Booth arrives alone at the one passable exit from D.C. And there were soldiers stationed there. Picking it up from Dark Union, it's written here that uh, with a 9 o'clock curfew imposed on unofficial crossings of um, the Potomac, or at that point it might be the Anacostia, uh, the Navy Yard Bridge was guarded by a sergeant and a detail of the 3rd Heavy Artillery main volunteers. Earlier, earlier that evening, the sergeant had told his men that a password, TB, would be used for crossing with the countersign TB Road. The soldier who revealed this thought it curious that, quote, until then we had never had orders to use such a password. He was stationed on the Maryland side of the bridge. Between 10 and 11, he heard through the blockhouse door a horse coming over from Washington at a gallop. The soldier and his corporal sprang outside and demanded of the rider where he was bound. TB was the response. TB what? TB road. The corporal ordered the gate opened, and the horseman rode off. Another soon followed, using the same password. He, too, was allowed through, said one of the soldiers. It is funny what's going on tonight. Now, just as an explanation uh, from this particular uh, guard unit, and this comes from the uh, Evening Star, May 17, 1865. And we're going to pick it up with the testimony of the sergeant in charge of that unit, one Silas D. Cobb. And I'll just pick it up with his explanation. Some are quotes here that they use, some are uh, the writer paraphrasing what went on, so it goes in and out of that stuff, which is a style I don't think anybody could uh, consider good journalism, but I guess they did it at that time. Uh, also, it, it may have been difficult for some, well, for any reporters really, to try to keep up with a word-for-word transcription of what took place, and I don't know if they had any access to whatever recording was being done at each trial, like the stenographer. All right, this is Silas Cobb. He testified that he was on, uh, on the night of the assassination of the president on duty at the Navy Yard Bridge and saw three men approach rapidly on horseback between half past 10 and 11 o'clock. <clears throat> That's interesting, there's three, huh? Witness challenged them. Now, this is going... This is still the narrative, rather, right? The witness being Cobb. Witness challenged them and advanced to them to recognize them. Witness was satisfied that they were proper persons to pass and passed them. Witness could not identify any of the persons as being one of the men. Witness recognized the photograph of Booth as the man who passed first. Witness asked him who he was. He said his name was Booth. I asked him where from. He answered from the city. I asked him where are you going? Going home. I asked where his home was, he said in Charles. 
which I understood to be Charles County. I asked him what town. He said he didn't live in any town. I said, you must live in some town. He said, I live close to Bryantown, but I do not live in town. I asked him why he was out so late. <coughs> Excuse me. If he did not know, persons were not permitted to pass after the time of night. He said it was news to him. He said he had uh, some ways to go, that it was dark, and that, uh, and that he thought he would have a, a moon. The men were approached um, singly several minutes' time in between each. The second one, who was a small-sized man, did not seem to have been riding rapidly. He was from five to ten minutes later than the first. Witness asked him who he was. He said his name was Smith, that he was going to White Plains. And witness asked him how he came to be out so late. He made use of a rather indelicate word in replying, from which I should judge he had been in bad company. Uh, the witness had a good view of the man's face before the guardhouse door. He was about the same size uh, of Harold, but lighter complexion. Did not think Harold was the man. I allowed him to pass, but the other man I turned back. This was the third rider. He did not seem to have sufficient business to warrant me in passing him. He made an inquiry uh, whether a man had passed on a roan horse. The second one who had come up uh, made no inquiry in regard to another horseman. The second horse was a roan and did not seem to be trotting. I, sh I would think it was the kind of, of uh, a kind of half-racking. Booth rode a rather undersized bright bay with a smooth, shining skin. Uh, he looked smooth and as though he had uh, a short push. He seemed restive and uneasy, much more uh, so than the rider. Now, the third rider supposedly was someone from a Nailer's livery stable who thought, for the most part, that one of his horses had been stolen. Harold had rented one, and Hinson had rented one. And it's true that Booth was on a bright bay. And we'll go back to uh, Dark Union to pick it up. Just kind of summarizing what happened after uh, Booth had shot the president, stabbed Rathbone, and then jumped to the uh, stage floor. Uh, a local resident familiar with every outlet from Baptist Alley had the presence of mind to speed friends in opposite directions to the lane that opened on F Street, to another egress at E Street, and to a private pass passageway alongside a grocery on 9th, meaning 9th Street. Uh, they were too late. The assassin had vanished, and no one knew for sure which direction. Residents along F Street heard hoofbeats passing eastward, but this was off Booth's course and had other drawbacks. An extended slope upward and deep furrows plowed in the unpaved clay by traffic crowded uh, to one side since the installation of the streetcar railway. So in other words, it was a muddy street for uh, at least uh, a half of it, the width of it. To prevent pedestrians from tumbling into the muddy channels, the city corporation had erected fencing along the edge of the sidewalk. This formed another barrier to anyone in a hurry along the lane from Baptist Alley into F Street. But someone was heard fleeing east on horseback over the uh, timbered rails. Wrongly believed thereafter to have been John Wilkes Booth, it was Edward Henson, a pint-sized guerrilla scout for the South, who had smuggled medicines for Booth, joined the actor's conspiracy, and was to prove his most devoted subordinate. Henson appears in the NDP's photo of assembled smugglers. And in that photo also was uh, David Herald. And the reason why they make mention of this photo is because these, the National Detective Police, using uh, a canard that 
they just wanted to take a photo. I mean, they didn't identify themselves as police. <clears throat> they wanted uh, to take a photo of all these individuals that were down there at St. Mary's. And uh, all of them with the chance of getting their photo taken said, yeah, sure. So it was a group picture. And in that was both Hinson and Harold. But that photo also served as, served as a means of identification for the NDP uh, of Southern uh, sympathizers, conspirators, and spies. Uh, Hinson was one of uh, a few conspirators who had shown up at Ford's Theater. We don't really know who the other ones are. And, of course, Sergeant, I think it was, his office was a sergeant. Um, that's Die, D-Y-E, and, and if you remember from a past episode, he had said that he had heard what he, who he thinks now was Booth and someone else talking about when Lincoln was going to come out, or if he would come out, and that would have been between the second and third acts. Uh, between ten and half past ten, from curtain windows on F Street, his roan horse was seen tethered at a gap left in the pedestrian's fence by removal of a board earlier in the day. This is Hinson and his horse. Hinson rented the roan that afternoon at Naylor's stable with the uh, assistance of Will Browning's Mosbyite brother, Ringgold. They talk Mosbyite, they mean somebody who is with uh, Mosby. And that was the uh, famous Confederate raider, if you will, guerrilla. And during those electrifying moments in the theater, Hinson had lurked in a vacant lot that stretched from Ford's green room to F Street. If Hinson had not known by then that Booth meant to kill, at least he expected to bring the president outside, a captive at gunpoint. Hinson waited for Booth in the shadow of the green room. Uh, when, he, uh, when he knew the actor had emerged through the back door at Baptist Alley and was making off on horseback, he too had moved. Occupants of the alley tenements and back rooms uh, on F Street heard him clamber over a six-foot fence, boarding the vacant lot. To reach his horse, Hinson had to squeeze through the gap uh, in the second fence, the protective uh, paneling along the curb. The rutted clay was unsafe, uh, so Hinson rode off at a gallop along the streetcar planking. Neighborhood dwellers, hearing the rapid hoofbeats on timber, were also puzzled by a series of shrill, whis shrill whistles. The Mosby I touched, they communicated with these sh short whistles, shrieks, uh, just like what bird calls mean to birds. Uh, they were not the only odd phenomena that night. <clears throat> Someone had shut off the power to the commercial telegraph. For three hours, the only communication out of Washington would be over military lines. And within the same 30 minutes after the shooting at Ford's, someone at the gas works on Maryland Avenue shut off the gas that fed the lights around the Capitol and westward, westward along Pennsylvania Avenue. This was about the time Booth spurred his horse eastward along the same stretch. Now, it would seem that whoever the second rider was, would, uh, if, if a, um, a co-conspirator, if an accomplice of Booth, would have either been riding with Booth or not long behind. And it might have been smarter for both of them to have been not together. Uh, and the reason I say this, uh, that one of the reasons why Harold could not or let's just say it would, be un it would be very unlikely if Harold was with Powell. Uh, some say that Powell was too stupid to know how to get to Lafayette Square area where Seward's house was, but uh, I'm not throwing that out. It would seem, and there are, there's some very interesting accounts of, about Powell's behavior, it would seem more so that he might have been suffering from battle, um, 
not fatigue, but post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, he had been wounded. He had seen a lot. And he might have gotten a little twisted by that. Otherwise, it seems like he had reasonable intelligence, but just behaved in a manner that made him appear kind of Neanderthal. But for Harold to have been uh, at Lafayette Park, at Seward's house, that in itself is behind, uh, is west of where Ford's Theater is. Now, it's possible that that Harold could have left at just the right time to um, be fleeing in the same direction as Booth, but that's more of a stretch. That would have to be a coincidence, rather than it having be. And of course, I'm I'm, I'm leaning to the fact that uh, Booth's accomplice, from uh, the moment he shot Lincoln onward, was Henson. Uh, it was more likely that it was Henson because Henson had to scramble, go get his horse, you know, climb over a fence, blah blah blah, and then finally get on his way. And that might have put him very much only five minutes behind Booth. And, of course, the third rider was uh, somebody who uh, worked at Naylor's, the place where they rented out horses. But his account of what he did uh, with regard to giving an, uh, a report to the police, let's put, it, let's put it this way. The reality varies with what he said he did. All right, now we'll try to track this, what will become... Uh, the um, fleeing of two sets of fugitives, one pair being uh, Booth and Henson, the other pair being Boyd and Harold. So you could make things much more confusing. Uh, both sets of fugitives have their... their uh, <coughs> Their principles share the same initials. B is in Booth, B is in Boyd, H in, as in Henson, H is in Harold. And that's, I'm not going to say that's one of the reasons why everything gets screwed up, but it doesn't help any, does it? So we'll pick it up. All right, Booth and Henson are now both across the Navy Bridge. The third individual, supposedly Fletcher from Naylor's stable, turns back. As... Um, Dark Union reports, after they crossed the Navy uh, Yard Bridge, Booth and Henson rode eastward along the Washington Marlboro Turnpike. Under an almost full moon blurred by thin clouds, they stopped the traveler to confirm their route. It would be said and perpetuated with seldom a challenge that the pair was, that was then headed uh, due south to Surrattsville, now Clinton, Maryland. And you can see that on the map where Clinton, Maryland is. So we're looking right now at the late hours of Friday the 14th going into the early morning hours of Saturday the 15th. Now in Surrattsville stood the tavern uh, of, well, also formerly a post office owned by Mary Surratt. And it was leased to a habitual drunkard by the name of John Lloyd. A confession dragged out of Lloyd by a gas fitter turned special officer to assist Washington's military provost marshal described the visit by Mary Surratt on Good Friday afternoon and the supply of a carbine to Booth at midnight. 
Uh, in fact, Booth and Hinson swung off the turnpike on a roughly southeasterly course. They were making for the Patuxent River. This original plan was for the kidnap party coming down from Washington to divide where the road forked below the hamlet called TB. If you remember the password being TB. Booth would have raced southwest to the Potomac and boarded the Indian Prince. The ship lay in a Potomac inlet called Nanjamoy Creek. At Benedict's Landing on the Patuxent, a second vessel, the Indian Queen, awaited the special cargo destined for Bloodsworth Island. In the kidnapping plot, Lincoln was going to be taken to the Indian Queen that's on the Patuxent, a river that is north of the Potomac. And it's not very far north. I mean, it, it creates a neck of land that isn't all that wide in between. So, so the plan was Booth and the boys go down to the Potomac and jump the, uh, the ship known as the Indian Prince. And then Lincoln, supposedly kidnapped and party, uh, go to the Patuxent, get aboard it near Benedict's Landing, uh, and get on the Indian Queen and take it to Blo- Bloodsworth Island, which is out in the Chesapeake, where they would keep Lincoln uh, prisoner until whatever deals were struck. Uh, there was now no kidnap party for those old chaffy craft, and that's what the, the Indian Queen and the Indian Prince were. They were chaffy craft. Briggs, they called them. Uh, to accommodate only a fleeing assassin who had decided that it was safer for him not to head for Nanjamoy Creek, but to fork southeast. Bryantown was a convenient last stop for the abductors and their prize before reaching Benedict's. Now it was all the more important to Booth, for whom flight was an agony. That jump from the stage box had wrenched his left leg. Near Bryantown lived Dr. Samuel Mudd, whose cooperation in the kidnap venture had been secured, and whose services as a physician, Booth hoped, would be as generously available. Mudd recognized the injured man, half carried across his threshold at 4 o'clock Saturday morning, but he was unaware of the carnage in Washington. Neither did he know the little fellow who had arrived with Booth and who gave his name as Henston, H-E-N-S-T-O-N. Mudd cut off Booth's left riding boot to inspect the swollen ankle and diagnose the trouble as a straight fracture of the tibia two inches above the ankle. He improvised splints, and after resting in Mud's bedroom, uh, Booth shaved off his mustache. So that's important. Saturday morning, uh, April 15th, Booth shaved off his mustache. So any accounts of seeing Booth, uh, a person with a mustache, uh, they're, they're not erroneous. They're just not Booth. It's Boyd. All right, in fact, uh, let's go to Dark Union for this uh, portion of the escape uh, from D.C. After they crossed the Navy uh, Yard Bridge, Booth and Henson rode eastward along the Washington Marlboro Turnpike under an almost full moon blurred by thin clouds. They stopped a traveler to confirm their route. It would be said, and perpetuated with seldom a challenge, that the pair then headed due south to Surrattsville, which is now Clinton, Maryland where stood the tavern, also formerly a post office, owned by Mary Surratt, and leased to a habitual drunkard named John Lloyd. A confession dragged out of Lloyd by a gas-fitter-turned-special officer to assist Washington's military provost marshal described the visit by Mary Surratt on Good Friday afternoon 
and the supply of a carbine uh, to Booth at midnight. In fact, Booth and Hinson swung off the turnpike, that would be the uh, Washington Marlboro Turnpike, uh, on a roughly southeasterly course. They were making for the Patuxent River. The original plan was for the kidnapped party coming down from Washington to divide where the road forked below the hamlet called TB. Booth would have raced southwest to the Potomac and boarded the Indian Prince. The ship lay in a Potomac inlet called Nanjamoy Creek. At Benedict's on the Patuxent, that would be Benedict's Landing, a second vessel, the Indian Queen, not the Indian Prince, the Indian Queen, awaited a special cargo destined for Bloodsworth Island. There was now um, no kidnapped party for those old chaffy craft to accommodate. The chaffy craft refers to the Indian Prince and the Indian Queen. Um, only a fleeing assassin who had decided that it was safer for him not to head for Nanjamoy Creek but the fork southeast. Bryantown was a convenient last stop for the abductors and their prize before reaching Benedict's. Now it was all the more important to Booth, for whom flight was in agony. That jump from the stage box had wrenched his left leg. Now remember, this is his left, not his right. Uh, near Bryantown lived Dr. Samuel Mudd, whose cooperation in the kidnap venture had been secured and whose services as a physician, Booth hoped, would be as generously available. Mudd recognized the injured man and half carried across his threshold at 4 o'clock Saturday morning, but he was unaware of the carnage in Washington. Neither did he know the little fellow who had arrived with Booth and who gave his name as Henston. And in this case, it's not spelled H-E-N-S-O-N. Perhaps Edward, or actually Edwin, might have just kind of changed his name a little bit but Henston, or at least that's what Mudd heard, H-E-N-S-T-O-N. Mudd cut off Booth's left riding boot to inspect the swollen ankle and diagnose the trouble as a straight fracture of the tibia two inches above the ankle. He improvised splints, and after resting in the Mudd's bedroom, Booth shaved off his mustache. All right, picking it back up, uh, Dark Uni, it's, uh, it's written that uh, that same morning, Upon hearing of Booth's crime, that would be Saturday morning, the 15th, uh, his pathetic little blue-eyed lover, Ella Turner, tried to kill herself with chloroform. She was saved by a doctor hurriedly brought to her sister's brothel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check this out, though, because uh, there is a, um, a, a news article. Let me see where this was. Help me out here, sports fans. Come on. All right, this is the uh, New York Tribune. Yeah, this is April 17th, the New York Tribune. And with reference to uh, Turner's uh, uh, alleged and failed suicide, it states, This morning, Detective Kelly and a detail of patrolmen of uh, the Second Ward, by order of Judge Olin, proceeded to the house of Molly Turner, corner of 13th Street and Ohio Avenue and arrested all the inmates <laughs> from the mistress to the cook, eight and all, and carried them to the police headquarters uh, to be held as witnesses. This is the house where Booth spent much of his time, uh, Ella Turner, the woman who attempted suicide, being his kept mistress and who did eventually bear him a child. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? And the inmates, uh, we would call them uh, prostitutes. 
And also above that, uh, another news flash. Uh, subhead, a coat found. Yesterday, a great, a gray coat stained with blood, in which had evidently been worn as an overcoat, was found near Fort Bunker Hill, just back of Glenwood Cemetery. Is the pocket, uh, sorry, in the pocket was a false mustache, a pair of riding gloves, and a slip of paper upon which was written, quote, Mary E. Gardner, 419, end of quote. This is supposed to have been worn by the man who attacked Secretary Seward, although the weight of the evidence indicates that all the conspirators took the same route, that of the Navy Yard Bridge. So what? I mean, that's a stupid sentence. This is supposed to have been worn by the man who attacked Secretary Seward. Okay. Although the weight of the evidence indicates that all the conspirators took the same route, that of the Navy Yard Bridge. Unless they're saying that wherever this was found was not along that route. But as they would find, and I wouldn't even say it's bad reporting, it's just that what they would find out later was Powell did not leave the city. If, in fact, he is uh, the... Um, Assailant uh, with with uh, Secretary Seward, and getting back to Dark Union, uh, the man who had left her pregnant rested at Samuel Mudd's. The doctor had gone to Bryantown ostensibly to buy calico for making bandages. He was actually seeking a carriage for his lame guest and what information he could pick up of Union troops in the vicinity, from townsfolk and federal soldiers he learned for the first time that someone had shot Lincoln. He also heard it said that the assassin was believed to be a man called Boyd. When Mudd returned home without a carriage, he found his visitors on the point of leaving. They asked his advice on easterly roads. Uh, Booth was helped to the saddle. He and Hinson rode toward the Patuxent River. Quote, the murderers have, it is believed, gone southeast and will perhaps attempt to board some vessel waiting to take them to sea, end of quote. Those words from Quartermaster General Montgomery C. Meggs of Baltimore were the closest any official statement came to describing Booth's intended course. Having themselves stayed too long at Dr. Mudd's, Booth and Henson now had Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Dana's patrols to, to um, contend with. Beating a path through bog and pine groves, they were met by a farmhand who warned of soldiers at Benedict's Landing. They wheeled northward and crossed Black Swamp Creek, hoping to strike uh, the river further upstream. But again, they were headed off by troops riding into Horsehead Village, and for the second time they were forced to change direction. As Saturday night fell, they rode westward, bound now for the Potomac River, part of their journey through a dense man-made fen called Zakiah Swamp. The southeastern reaches of Zakiah Swamp oozed into a Potomac inlet near the village of Allen's Fresh. Here among the pines huddled Booth and a solitary companion. Hinson was a dumpling of a youth who had lost some of his rebel zealotry and now prayed. A mulatto guide had brought them safely through the marshy maze to the baronial estate of a planter named Samuel Cox, one of the local recruits in Booth's kidnap plan. The collapse of the Confederacy and Lincoln's assassination were reasons enough for Cox to now stay clear of trouble. But, also, he had applied for a Union pass to attend the bedside of his son, dying of war wounds. Booth and Henson appeared at his door early Sunday morning, 
Cox turned them away. He sent a servant after them with blankets, and to avoid recognition of their horses, he ordered the animals taken into a swamp and shot. But he transferred further responsibility for the pair's survival to a foster brother, Thomas Jones, the Confederacy's chief signal agent on the Maryland side of the Potomac. Jones steered them deeper into the forest. And I'll, and I'll say this right now. if you, uh, Jones has written a book about all this, but he claims that the sidekick of Booth was Harold, not Henson. And you would say, well, shouldn't he know? Well, I don't know. And secondly, you know, it's one of these things, if you want to play ball, then stick to the government story, which is Booth and Harold. That's all I'm going to say. Moving on, Booth and Henson appeared at his door early Sunday morning. Didn't I already read that? Yeah, I did. Okay. All right, bad weather persisted. Pain tore through Booth's left leg. But the Potomac was only three miles away and a further five miles west across a bight, and that's B-I-G-H-T. The river backed up into Nanjamoy Creek. Somewhere within this broad inlet lay John Celestina's Indian prince, her name obliterated from the stern, as had been the Indians twelve months earlier when the same shipmaster brought that vessel up the Atlantic coast with James V. Barnes on, uh, on board. Remember, Barnes was one of the individuals that were, was extremely crucial to the pork for cotton dealings that was going on. It was Barnes' letter that uh, I read originally when this whole thing first started, uh, in which he says, look, we got to get rid of Booth. This guy's a drama queen, and we need somebody to do something about Lincoln and Seward. We'd like them kidnapped and, quote, deposed for a fortnight. All right, fortnight. So, um that's that's Barnes, and it was on Celestina's uh, ships that he uh, also found transportation. Okay, now C- Celestina's uh, well, Celestina is kind of like what would you call a mercenary? You know, anything for hire. Uh, he he managed to escape any kind of in- indictment and conviction uh, on the condition that he just kind of like disappeared, which he didn't really. I think he was supposed to leave the country. I think he went to Texas, which could be considered leaving the country. All right, moving on. Uh, still on the Maryland side, Booth and Henson had not moved from the pines near Allen's Fresh. Shivering under a blanket, Booth wrote notes in an out-of-date pocket diary. On one of its pages, he sketched a current calendar. Under the date April 18, he had scrolled the word ship. But the Indian prince was beyond reach and that left Booth with no safe alternative. He had counted first on escape down the Chesapeake Bay, only to be cut off at the Patuxent exit. Now he faced the Potomac. To remain where he rested meant certain capture. He had to attempt the crossing of the river, unseen. While awaiting a chance, Booth diarized his thoughts, backdating a first entry and awkwardly linking two dates, as if unable to resist the theatrical analogy. Quote, April 13, 14. Friday, the Ides. Until today, nothing was even thought of sacrificing to our country's wrongs. For six months, we had worked to capture. End of quote. When the imminent defeat of their cause demanded, quote, something decisive and great, end of quote, none but he was strong-hearted enough to attempt it. Quote, I struck boldly, and not as the papers say, I walked with a firm step through a thousand of his friends. End of quote. 
Not that I'm mentioning chapters uh, all along the way, but uh, we are moving uh, through a few of them. This is now chapter 21. The uh, title is We Have Booth's Diary. Uh, and catching up only to more or less uh, attach some kind of um, chronology and travel log to uh, Booth and Henson as they uh, try to escape Maryland and uh, the reaches of any uh, Union troops in Virginia. Starts off with, Booth was foiled by Union River patrols in his first attempt across the Potomac. He and the faithful Henson were guided back inland to the lowest reaches of Zakiah Swamp and left on the front porch of an elderly couple named Adams, whose tavern had been a rendezvous for the Confederate underground and members of the kidnapped plot. They were offered food, but the Adamses stopped short of allowing strangers across their threshold. In the appropriate space of, of his pencil calendar, Booth noted where he and Henson spent uh, Friday, April 21st, with a single depressing word, swamp. So they had tried to cross over, and it wasn't going to happen. Now, um, there is a river that runs directly south of Zakiah Swamp and then bends to the southeast. This really wasn't, I, I believe, an exit of choice. This is the uh, Wacomico River, and that would send them to the southeast a bit more, but it still would dump out uh, in uh, the Potomac River. But this is not where uh, Booth and Hinton wanted to go because they wanted to, by all means, as best they could, head as far southwest as possible and get into Virginia across the Potomac River. All right, uh, Booth was foiled by Union River patrols in his first attempt to cross the Potomac. He and the faithful Henson were guided back inland to the lowest reaches of Zakiah Swamp and left on the front porch of an elderly couple named Adams, whose tavern had been a rendezvous for the Confederate underground and members of the kidnapped plot. They were offered food, but the Adamses stopped short of allowing strangers across their threshold. In the appropriate space of his pencil calendar, Booth noted where he and Henson spent Friday, April 21st, with the single depressing word, swamp. All right, so they had a failed attempt, had a try again, so let's pick that up. Um, that Friday night, and this would be a week from the time that Booth had killed uh, Lincoln. So uh, that deed was done on Good Friday, April 14th, 19, uh, 1865. And now we're looking at Friday, the 21st. That Friday night was blustery with a heavy sea running in Chesapeake Bay. Two ships stood down the Potomac and the steamer Don, that's the name of the ship, flagship of the Potomac flotilla. Uh, it failed to see, I, I have to get this straight because you've not heard about this before and so we'll pick it up. There's going to be a collision here with one of Celestina's uh, uh, frigates. All right, uh, that Friday night was blustery with a heavy sea running in Chesapeake Bay. Two ships stood down the Potomac and the steamer Don, flagship of the Potomac flotilla, failed to see their lights in time. Maneuvering to avoid one of the vessels, she collided with the other, which sank. During the confusion, a third ship came down and the Don, damaged in the bow, showed all lights and managed to fire four of her eight guns. The stranger, meaning the strange ship, continued to advance past the flagship and disappeared south. The second of the Chaffee kidnapped vessels had made her escape. Now, this is something entirely to the, you know, kind of like an, 
a sidebar to all this. So you had this collision that took place uh, with another ship, the Don. I don't know what the, fl- what the Potomac flotilla they're talking about. Uh, that's just not clear. But uh, we had a collision out there in the, uh, the Chesapeake, and one ship sank, and uh, the other of the Chaffee kidnapped vessels uh, made their way um, out to sea. All right, through the gusty darkness, Thomas Jones led the way from Allen's Fresh, a silent booth astride Jones' horse, Hinson stumbling alongside on foot. At Jones' farm, uh, Huckleberry, they paused for a meal, then moved on, passing the public road to strike directly over fields to the bluffs above Pope's Creek. Daylight neared, and this would be Saturday morning. The two put off in a boat Jones had provided. They touched the Virginia shore safely at uh, Macadac Creek, and that's M-A-C-H-O-D-A-C. See the Machadac or Macadac. Uh, Booth wrote, quote, M period, C period, unquote, in his makeshift calendar. A federal gunboat lurked nearby. Booth saw another stream, Gambo Creek, where at a footbridge they tied the boat to a walnut tree and waited. A Confederate scout took over. He led them to Claydell, the summer home of Dr. Richard Henry Stewart, probably King George County's wealthiest landowner. Stewart was related to Robert E. Lee. His wife had knitted socks for Lee soldiers. Twice Stewart had served time in Union jails for disloyalty, but he continued as a reliable link in the Confederacy's intelligence network. Unsigned statements attributed to Stewart, sundry locals, and stragglers from Colonel Mosby's command, all roped in by Lafayette Baker's detectives and summarily released. These constitute the only official record of what occurred that third weekend of April 1865 in the thickly wooded expanse between the Potomac shore and the banks of the Rappahannock River. At this point in time, uh, I created, uh, let's see what, maybe five graphics uh, that will show you the travels of two pairs of fugitives, one being Booth and Henson, that's one pair, and the other pair being Boyd and Harold. So if you take a look at what's labeled uh, Booth Map 1, from what you just heard, take a look at that graphic. All right, now you'll see at the very top, uh, there's a, uh, a number 1 written there, just to the uh, lower right of both the, the uh, city's names of Arlington and Washington. That's a Navy Yard bridge crossing. Booth came over first, Hinson trailed. Then you go down to number two. Now, all those little circles, they don't necessarily mean something went on there. That's one of the ways that I could bend what would all be just straight line trajectories for all everybody's travels and such, okay? So that's that second circle without a number just indicates that I had to make a bend when, in fact, their travels took uh, a little bit change in vector, okay? So one was the Navy uh, Yard Bridge crossing. I believe that's the 11th Street Bridge as we know it now. Okay, now, number two, that's Surratt's Tavern. 
where uh, supposedly Booth picked up uh, some firearms. Now, three is Dr. Mudd's home. Now, that would have been Saturday, April 15th, early morning hours. Okay? So, Mudd helps uh, splint Booth's left leg, not his right. And there's all kinds of, of confusion as to whether Mudd knew who it was or, you know, the person had a, a, a fake beard. I mean, like, you can't tell it's a fake beard. I mean, stop. All right? I think Mudd knew exactly who it was. Uh, be that as it may, I don't, I don't mind the fact that, you know, <laughs> that he was released and not sentenced uh, to a life imprisonment down to the Dry Tortugas. So he's at Mudd's home, and then he departs there, and he goes on a northeast tangent trying to strike the river, as you heard before, the Patuxent, a little bit up, well, from Benedict's Landing, because there was the Indian Queen in the Patuxent, and the Indian, uh, Indian Prince was in the Potomac. But he can't make the Patuxent River because there are patrols that are stopping him from doing that. So he figures, okay, let's bag the whole attempt to get to the Patuxent. And all during this time as well, he's not sure if any of these ships are going to pull out. There's two of them, right? We got the uh, Indian Princess and the Indian Queen. So he bags trying to go to the Patuxent River and then turns around and heads southwest uh, of finally reaching Allen Fresh, Allen's Fresh, which, which is a, a town uh, at the uh, south end of Zakaya Swamp. There he stays, like from April 16th through the 21st, uh, hunkering down while there are patrols all over the place. Now he and Henson make an attempt to cross the Potomac, but it failed, and they both tried again from Pokes Creek. That's uh, number six, and that's Saturday, early morning hours again, April 22nd. Now, uh, he does make it across, the two of them make it across uh, at a place called Macadac Creek. And then because of a federal gunboat uh, in the vicinity, apparently Booth didn't feel safe, uh, and uh, he and Henson just slipped a little bit further north to another stream uh, that he had passed before, and that's where they got out and tied up the boat at a place called Gambo Creek. Right. Uh, so for the moment, let's just hold uh, Booth and Henson at Gambo Creek. We'll freeze them there, and then let's go take a look at what's going on with Boyd and Harold at about the same time. All right, so back to Dark Union for a bit of a chronology. Uh, all right, David Harold, who supposedly, supposedly was with Booth, was, in fact, with Boyd. All right, we'll pick this up. Okay, um, <clears throat> reconnoitering among lower Chesapeake Bay smuggling haunts, of which the Army knew nothing. On Sunday morning, they picked up a drink-dazed a, a drink David Herald. He was already a target for suspicion. Lewis Weichmann, a willing informer savoring revenge for his humiliations at Mary Surratt's boarding house, had told Police Superintendent Richards of Herald's visits 
uh, with John Wilkes Booth and co-conspirators, and that would be at the boarding house. Also at police headquarters, the stableman from Naylor's had named Harold as having hired a horse for Booth on Good Friday. But Edward Hinson had also hired a horse and was seen by the stableman. And that night it was Hinson, not Harold, whom the stableman saw racing out of town. Uh, because more than one source has said that Harold was not in D.C. on April 14th during uh, the assassination. Uh, he had left earlier in the day and got loaded with a friend of his. And you're not going to believe what this friend's name is. Well, I'll tell you now. <clears throat> Besides his physical resemblance to Edward Hinson, it was hardly to Harold's advantage that, it, in his sister's words, Davy is a loose, uh, loose tongued, scatterbrained, lovable little boy who made up stories just for the fun of hearing himself talk. Nor did it help that in the war years he had sought adventure down Chesapeake Bay with rebel smugglers. But what could not have been worse for the errant Georgetown University youth uh, was that his companion, in and out of Washington, the day Lincoln was shot, happened to be a neighboring blacksmith's son named Johnny Booth. You can't make this stuff up. Now, did you pick that up, though, that one of the, his sisters, I think he was the only boy in a, with, like, I don't know, four or five female siblings, says, Davy is a loose-tongued, scatterbrained, lovable little boy who made up stories just for the fun of hearing himself talk. But, you know, it goes on to say, but what could not have been worse for the errant Georgetown youth, he went to Georgetown and did okay. Does that sound like, shall we say, a simp? And that wasn't the only post-secondary school he attended. I think he attended one up in Baltimore, too. Something to do with medicine. All right, moving on. Without fanfare, the NDP, that's the National Detective Police, brought Harold into Washington drunk and manacled. He had worked per peripherally in the kidnap plot, and although Booth uh, the booth he had caroused with on Good Friday was unrelated to the assassin. Lafayette Baker figured that Harold might be a useful guide in his private manhunt. Harold was photographed at NDP headquarters and hustled back out of town into the Maryland countryside. All right, now this is going to set up why those who want to bang on Neff and others with the, um, the famous wanted poster that showed Booth, Harold, and Surratt uh, and this bit about cropping out his manacles. Well, here's, here's what happened. Harold's already been in and photographed. But later on, he turned into a fugitive. So, yeah, there's the photograph with him manacled when he was brought in for those photos. And he was brought back out into the countryside as a guide to try to find more information out from Confederate sympathizers who knew Harold and would trust him um, after the fact on Monday. So, well, you'll understand why that, that he could have been photographed, manacled, and could have been a fugitive. We'll go to this next paragraph. His, meaning Harold. His picture was sent with carte de visite of Booth and John Surratt to the Army Medical Museum. Those are small photos. Uh, staffed in part by hospital stewards who photographed and classified surgical specimens taken from the war's dead and wounded. When Lincoln was shot, the stewards were given the immediate task of working on pictures of suspects. The pictures were intended for reward purposes. The photo of Harold, already in handcuffs, puzzled at least one hospital steward. But, he later recalled, at that time it was wisest not to ask questions. For a reward poster with Harold's picture, soon issued, 
the manacles were cropped. So it's like, so you see what happened here? He was brought in, he was photographed, cuffed, and then he goes out, as we're going to find out, with the patrol to find out more information about uh, Booth and his whereabouts. So Harold's now free on the countryside. Well, not free, but uh, riding uh, through the countryside. On Monday the 17th, detectives were moving among the deceptively serene hamlets between the Potomac and Patuxent Rivers, pushing Harold on ahead as bait to trap secessionist locals into betraying clues to Booth's whereabouts. They halted at a crumbling plantation between Piscataway and Surrattsville that served as hideout or command post for the parole Confederate secret agent James W. Boyd, of whom they knew little, other than that he had uh, ostensibly cast his lot with the North. They called him out and attached him to their group. Here's where Boyd and Harold are joined. While Booth and Hinson are further southwest and trying to make it to the rivers, where in, this, in this case it's going to be the Potomac, um, not that they're trying to beat Boyd and, and Harold, whom they have no idea uh, are out there. <clears throat> Boyd had performed his kidnap duties more or less without interruption in exchange for, quote, secret service, unquote, to the Union Secretary of War, he had been freed and promised a new life in Mexico. Once the American Emigrant Legion had helped Juarez expel the French from that land, he would settle down as a colonist there and send for his children. So Boyd now, and, and this is what happened, Juarez had made it known to soldiers uh, on both sides of the blue and gray, that anyone who wanted to come down and help uh, the Mexicans rid themselves of Maximilian and French troops, come on down, help us drive them out, and you will we'll get a generous reward. Now, Boyd knows that with the assassination of Lincoln, law enforcement and the military are going to check everything, everybody, and they're going to turn up probably a kidnap plot over which Boyd presided. It had once been the purview of John Wilkes Booth, but they, as you remember, really early on, the letter between Barnes and Watson, uh, both that were involved in the pork for cotton deal, were saying, we're enough with Booth, he's a, dr he's a drama queen. And that's when Boyd took over, and... Um, was still in charge of that plot, but that night it failed. Everyone knew something was going to happen that night. How else would they have had the ability to uh, sh shut off lights in a certain sector of w uh, Washington, D.C., gas lights, and also uh, knock out the telegraph for some time? Both of those happening on that night, that's not a coincidence. So in other words, there were people in high places who could get that done, who knew something was going to happen, in their mind, it was probably, most likely, a kidnap plot. However, Booth, we don't know when, uh, decided to whack Lincoln. Now, although Andrew Johnson's thrown in there, and U.S. Grant's thrown in there, and Stanton's thrown in there, the bottom line was, if you remember, in the letter between Barnes and Watson, it stated that the, that the two of them, and that would be, uh, Lincoln and Seward, the Secretary of State, were responsible for terminating 
the pork for cotton deal. And that there was a lot of money out there. And they felt betrayed by Lincoln, who in fact did betray them. But in this sense, it was because doing this would bring about a rapid end to the war, which is what Lincoln wanted. He wanted the war ended quickly and, and a, a reconciliation as soon as possible. This did not at all uh, sit agreeably with about everybody else in his party and in the North. All right. Uh, and it's, now, remember this again. At this point, Boyd knows the deal is done. And since he's on the road now anyway, he's thinking, just we're not going to be able to get a ship. The ships are probably gone. We're going to ride out of here and head on down to Mexico. Remember Mexico, because it's interesting what is said by a trooper that was at Garrett's farm uh, in earshot of the dying person on the porch and what that dying person said. And think Mexico. All right. Uh, this had been Boyd's optimistic vision. That is going down to Mexico. Uh, shattered like so much else by an assassin's bullet. Boyd now had cause for great fear. In the wake of Lincoln's murder, that original plot, which was kidnapping, was fast unraveling. The conspiracy's nameless higher-ups may have already decided on a safer means of securing the silence of hirelings than the promised gift of Mexican acreage. After Booth's mad act, which I don't think was a mad act, uh, which had caught everyone off guard, the need was all the greater to obliterate cogs in the kidnap apparatus. The party, and that means uh, the patrol that's, that's going through Lower Maryland with Harold uh, and Boyd in tow, the party stopped at isolated farmsteads, questioning sullen landowners and, quote, free darkies, unquote, Early on Wednesday, they had crossed into Charles County and before sunrise were resting between Bryantown and the eastern edge of Zacchaeus Swamp. The detectives appeared to be asleep. But if it looked all too easy and stirred Boyd's apprehensions of some elaborate setup, he would take that chance. Quietly, he collected one of the detectives' carbines and three pistols and stole away, with David Harold at his side. From that moment, not one but two pairs of fugitives were at large. At daybreak, a couple of detectives plunged into, into Zakiah Swamp after Boyd and Harold. Their collies clung to the trail of John Wilkes Booth, and by sundown were not far behind him. Now pull up uh, Boyd Map 1. All right, there, you, there you'll see... The route taken by Boyd and Harold. At number one, that's when Boyd was picked up Monday, April 17th. Now, number two, it's when the um, whole patrol posse, if you want to, Cross into Charles County, Wednesday, April 19th. Now, I don't know if there are any detailed accounts or accounts of, at all of what took place uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Especially Tuesday, though, because of the time it takes for them to get into Charles County. But if they're going around somewhat 
<clears throat> of course, it's not door to door, but it's kind of like farm to farm. <clears throat> it's going to take a while. So, um, the number two spots where they t- uh, turn into um, Charles County. Now, three is where, and by the way, yeah, they, they went into Charles County just past midnight, somewhere around there, on Wednesday, April 19th. But before dawn, Boyd and Harold escaped from the patrol. And that was, again, it was pre-dawn, Wednesday, April 19th. Now, they skirt around Zakaya Swamp. And there is a, um, a dot there that does not is not numbered. It's only because, again, uh, I wanted to put a crimp into what else would will only be a straight line uh, using um, the distance measurements, as you're seeing here, the stitch marks uh, from maps, uh, Google Maps. So they go through the swamp. They have to go around that one particular inlet, and then they go down southwest to a place called uh, Balls Point. Now they. Uh, Supper there with a family who knew Harold, and then uh, they found a bateau, which is a flat-bottom boat, and they decided, and it seems they did this on April 19th as well, so, you know, they were really very busy from about midnight, let's just say, on uh, Wednesday, April 19th, to almost the morning of April 20th. So they set off from Boyle's, uh, uh, Ball's point, point, rather, excuse me, in Nanjamoy Creek. What you see there is Nanjamoy Creek. And Ball's Point is obviously on the eastern shore. And from there, they're going to try to make it across the Potomac. If you were to put the uh, maps, the Boyd 2 and uh, Booth 2, in other words, Boyd, uh, Boyd Map 2 and Booth Map 2, you'll see that, that Boyd and Harold overtake Booth and Hinson. Uh, true, Booth and Hinson had a head start. They obviously skedaddled out of D.C. on April 14th. <clears throat> uh, Harold wasn't, well, I wouldn't say set free, but Harold didn't see the light of day until Monday, December, uh, excuse me, April 17th. And then they pick up Boyd Wednesday morning, April 19th. Booth and Henson are already down in that particular area. Not that they were where, I mean, they were already through Zakaya Swamp and hung out there for, for a number of days because Booth was still not in good shape and, and eventually Boyd wasn't either. It was Booth's lev- left leg that was horrible and Boyd was feeling his right leg. Both of them uh, having problems down around the ankle area, the lower tibia. So none of them were feeling really too well. The weather was not good. It was damp and rainy. I mean, April can be great the third week, and it can be rotten. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> Boyd and Henson get down in that area earlier around Pope's Creek. Boyd and Harold get down to Nanjamoy Creek and leave there on Wednesday morning, April 19th. 
whereas Booth and Henson didn't leave Pokes Creek until probably late Friday night and early Saturday morning. That's the 21st and the 22nd. So Boyd and Harold beat Booth and Henson across the Potomac. And if you look at that map too, Boyd and Harold reached shore uh, just west of Matthias Point. And if you look at Booth Map 2, you see that they had a more eastern departure on the east side of that, what you would call peninsula, atop which is Matthias Point. That's Virginia. So, so uh, they're both leaving Maryland. Boyd from Pope's Creek, Maryland. Uh, Boyd and Henson leaving from Balls Point, Maryland. Boyd and Harold make landfall at Matthias Point just west of it. Uh, and we're only going to guess that it was still Wednesday morning or April 19th. Whereas uh, Booth and Henson uh, arrived at uh, Macadac Creek early Saturday the 22nd. So they are now, not that there's a race here, but they are three days behind Boyd and Harold when it comes to making land fall, if you will, at, um, on Virginia. But then something else takes place because from what I, can, what I can divine from all the information that's available, and there's not a lot available, but that it was Booth and Henson who ferried the Potomac earlier than Boyd and Harold. What was Boyd and uh, Harold doing? What were Boyd and Harold doing? Who knows? Because no one's going to talk about it. Boyd wound up dead, and so did Harold. He was executed. And I'm sure, I think I can say this without really truly conjecturing, but Harold was probably told to shut up about a couple of things in exchange for leniency because they pulled the same thing with Mary Surratt. Uh, <clears throat> she was somewhat given assurances that she would not be executed. They were also given to her son in exchange for his silence for what he knew about what was going on. He maintained that silence right through the uh, end of his life. Uh, and that assured him, I, I would also not conjecture to say, but nearly assure you that that's what got him uh, a hung jury on uh, what you might call his part in the murder trial. He was not tried by a mili military tribunal as the other eight were. He, was, he got a civil trial in Georgetown, which is Jesu Jesuit Central, that should tell you something. But he was—he uh, didn't find out. I mean, he was—he was positive. His mother was not going to get hung, hanged rather, uh, until he found out that she did, and he was ripped. And it was because of Lewis Weichman. And, and I tell you, Surratt, watch what he said for the rest of his life. But about Lewis Weichman, he had some very. Uh, indicting words, and I believe he was right. Weichmann was a little worm, a little freaking worm who was going to tell anybody anything they wanted to hear. And he was responsible for a lot of those people, well, for the four being executed and the four being sent down to all places, the dry tortugas, which, I mean, if you're going to send them there, send them to Antarctica. It made no sense to send them down there. But you see, the, the, the deal was that any of the survivors could not talk to anybody who might listen and be able to do something about it. So, in essence, they were isolated, and frankly, they were sent down there to die. If they didn't die, okay, fine, you know, but at least they weren't talking to anybody.
Now, uh, if you look over at, at Booth 2, Booth Map 2, we talked about how uh, they didn't, Booth didn't want to really go ashore because of the presence of a federal gunboat. They go up to Gambo Creek. And we'll go back to Dark Union for apparently what took place. All right, so Booth now and um, Henson are leaving from Gambo Creek. And um, they're making their way, as you can see on the map, they're heading. Uh, now, remember, you're going to number four. So they're heading west-southwest. And number four is a, a Dr. Richard Stewart's home uh, in what is called, well, it's now a section called Claydale, uh, C-L-E-Y-D-A-E-L. On that map, that booth map number two, that number four where Stewart's house is, is exactly where Stewart's house is. That one is, is accurate. And it said, um, now Stewart was... Uh, a Confederate sympathizer, but why not? He's living in the South. I mean, you call a sympathizer. I mean, he's, he was a Confederate <clears throat> and um, ran afoul of uh, the authorities a couple of times. Uh, and it says, uh, and this is Dark Union, unsigned statements attributed to Stewart, to sundry, sundry locals and stragglers from Colonel Mosby's command, all roped in by Lafayette Baker's detectives and summarily released. These constitute the only official record of what occurred that third weekend of April 1865 in the thickly wooded expanse between the Potomac Shore and the banks of the Rappahannock River. Uh, it says, Testimony wildly conflicted. Stewart family tradition placed Booth in Claydell, the doctor seeming a uh, scene to his fractured leg. Stewart's statement, as composed in Baker's intimidating shadow, said otherwise. One of Stewart's ex-slaves described two men who stayed overnight uh, in his cabin, one lame and rough, who addressed the other as Dave. Well, that wouldn't be Booth. That might be Boyd. Uh, the next significant location was Port Royal. Years later, a busy tobacco outlet with a river ferry operable only at high tide. However, extracted testimony from witnesses at this crossing clearly indicates that two separate pairs of men were involved. Willie Jett, an ex-Mosby 18-year-old youth at the ferry, was so confused by the appearance of the second couple that he asked one of them for the name of his lame companion. The response came, if he told you his name was Boyd, he told you right. This would indicate, then, that if Jett realized there was a second pair of fugitives, uh, and if he asked one of the two in the second pair, what the other's name is, and he is told Boyd. So that means you've got Boyd and Harold passing across the Rappahannock after Boyd and Harold. And like I said, you, there's no account, especially for Boyd and Harold, as to what took place, where they went in those days that are kind of un, unaccounted for. Um, I, would, I would conjecture that Bo, uh, Booth being more badly hurt probably couldn't get up and at him as quickly and for as long as Boyd and Harold could. I mean, Boyd had trouble, no doubt, with his right leg, 
but that was something that had happened uh, uh, several years before. Uh, Booth is still dealing with a very nasty fracture. So, I mean, and, and how many times it was reset, and it was reset well at all. And you got somebody that's in severe pain, not to mention the threat of infection. So no matter who hit the Virginia shore first, and it certainly was Boyd and Harold, it was Booth, <coughs> excuse me, and Henson who crossed the Rappahannock before Boyd and Harold. <coughs> and if you take a look, uh, you'll see number uh, five, the two of them, Boyd and uh, rather Booth and Henson, ferry across the Rappahannock at Port Royal. But then they head west along the south bank of the Rappahannock, headed for Fredericksburg, which is number six. Right, so that's what they did. Uh, and as I said, they crossed the Rappahannock no later than 24th, and they had to be earlier than Boyd. If you look at Boyd map number two, uh, I have question marks because nobody really knows. But if, as we saw, there was reference to a second pair, uh, one of whom was asked, who's your, who's your partner? And then he says, well, Boyd. Then you realize that Booth and Henson made it through first. But then Booth and Henson head uh, west-northwest on their way to Fredericksburg. Whereas Boyd and Harold continue south, really, which is what is now known as US-301. They can continue further south. Uh, they stay at Garrett's Farm. And on the night of the 24th, well, let's see what Dark Union has to say about it. I want to make it clear that Boyd and Harold were at uh, Garrett's farm likely for two days. So now we're talking about Tuesday night, the second of the two days they were there. Now um, Union troops uh, catch up, thinking they have Booth. All right, picking it up from Chapter 22. On Tuesday night, April 25th, a cavalry troop of 26 men commanded by Lieutenant Edward P. Doherty uh, and two, quote, special detectives, end of quote, appointed by Lafayette Baker, surrounded Garrett's tobacco barn where, where the pair rested and shouted for them to surrender. During a verbal give and take through the locked door, no names were uttered. Soldiers forced the Garrett's to unlock the door. David Harrell emerged, hands raised. His captors uh, insisted that the man inside was the assassin Booth. Harrell argued, well, he told me his name was Boyd. Without the cavalry commander's knowledge or approval, Everton Conger, one of Baker's special detectives, stole to the rear of the barn and set it alight. As it burned, someone shot into it, and the man inside fell. Soldiers dragged his body from the flames to the garret's front porch. No one had seen who had fired. At first, Conger said that he thought a man, the man had shot himself. The other detective, Luther Baker, a cousin of the NDP chief, had an immediate impression that the gunman was Conger. The credit finally went to his Sergeant Corbett, who had changed his given name from Thomas to Boston after the city in which he claimed to have found religion. Port Royal's resident physician was sent for. He was Charles Urquhart, age 71, uh, the son of Scott immigrants. After private tutoring, he had studied medicine at the Medical College of Pennsylvania. Settled in Virginia, he was considered himself 
prim and, port, uh, prim and portly, but a good doctor. While in his 50s, he married a Port Royal girl less than half his age. They had a daughter, Fenella, who would have been about four when the soldiers from Garrett's farm pounded on her father's door. Upon reaching the man shot in Garrett's barn, Urquhart examined his wound and declared it fatal, gave him an hour to live, and rode away. No detailed account of the doctor's actions at Garrett's ever appeared. If he wrote out a death certificate for John Wilkes Booth, it was never published, nor is there one in official archives. Dr. Urquhart made no public or written statement, and he died 15 months after his extraordinary household. We're going to end this segment right here because uh, as much as I want to press on a little bit because uh, there's a little bit more ground to cover and I want to bring this whole um, theme of mystery history theater to an end. Uh, believe it or not, as I'm doing this kind of on my feet, relying on the Internet and uh, a link to chroniclingamerica.loc.gov, uh, some of the uh, editions of the uh, New York uh, Tribune and the Evening Star uh, papers from New York and Washington, respectively, uh, I can't get at them because the Library of Congress website uh, is kind of crashed because of use. Kids must have gotten out of school. It's 3.37 p.m. Eastern right here. So at any rate, we'll hold it there. And, I, you know, not to, I mean, it's not a bad place to stop because now you can start to hear about from the newspapers the accounts of uh, the shooting of uh, Booth or Boyd which we believe is Boyd, and I think you'll find out why. Uh, also, the chances are great that Corbett did not shoot uh, Boyd, that Conger did not shoot Boyd, that no soldier shot, shot Boyd, but that Boyd shot himself. And um, there's a certain amount of forensics, if you will, from that time that would uh, indicate that Boyd lifted the gun and shot downward on himself, and that nobody really was tall enough to shoot with that kind of trajectory into where uh, Booth, uh, Boyd was. Uh, again, all this stuff is interesting, but it, a lot of things have been cleared up had they not had a cover-up. And it, it'll, uh, it gets better as we go on. So, uh, you know, I guess it's a really good way to tease the next episode, and I didn't really mean to do that, but that's the way it's going to have to be. Mystery History Theater.